0: Hi, I'm Alessa Pindak, Chief Content Officer at Mind, Body, Green. Today I'm excited to welcome Biette Simkin to the Mind, Body, Green podcast. She's an artist, spiritual guide, the founder of The Center of the Cyclone, and the author of the new book, Don't Just Sit There. Biat's childhood was less than traditional, as she was raised by an awakened shaman and began meditating at the early age of just two. Her experiences from being signed to Sony Records at the age of 20 to battling addiction and finding light in the darkness is inspiring, and we could not be more excited to have her. Yet, yeah, thank you so much for being here. We're thrilled to have you on the Mind, Body, Green podcast. Thanks. I'm thrilled to be here as well. So let's dive right in. Can you tell us a little bit about the beginning? Take us back. Tell us about your childhood. I think of anything, we can definitely say that it was atypical.
1: <laughs> For sure. Yeah, I can speak to the genesis of what we're guided by Biet came from. Um you know, I was uh I was raised by an awakened shaman, which, you know, I think a lot of people mm, they're just kind of like what the what the hell does that feel like you know to be raised by an awakened shaman but it, it kind of feels like if anyone's ever read Eckhart Tolle or listened to him speak it's like living with a person who's like that 24 hours a day so like when you're eating your breakfast cereal you know Eckhart Tolle walks in and he's like are you in the present moment you know <laughs> so it's like that um, but my father not, not what's the weather No, he, he didn't care about weather. It was beyond (laughs) weather, my father. Um, and his name was Grigory Simkin. And, you know, he was a a weirdo. Like he came to, similarly to Eckhart, he like came to uh, a spiritual awakening in the woods of Russia at the age of like 39 or something and had did it in the midst of curing himself from tuberculosis. And, um, Prior to that was a Marxist atheist saxophone playing doctor you know so like already pretty eccentric mix but but it's interesting because you can be a doctor he was a medical doctor and you can be a jazz musician which he was you can be a husband which he was and a father which he was to my brother and still be miserable which he was. And then he, you know, got tuberculosis, which at Mind Body Green, I'm sure you guys speak a lot to the fact that people get sick when they're miserable yeah. all the time. Like it adds up and it leaks out and it transforms. And so then he was like, what, what do I do? You know, and, and um, this guy was like, you know, I can tell you what to do, but, you know, it's illegal in Russia and communist Russia. He's like, but. You could cure yourself from this disease. And my dad was like, I'll do anything. So he goes off to the woods, meets this secret shaman and studies this work, this work that I'm actually bringing to the world today with my book that we'll talk about later. Mm -hmm. But um, he studies this work, learns Ayurveda, learns Hatha Yoga, and cures himself from tuberculosis and like discovers what he calls God, but not religious God, right? Like the God that we all love is the vibration and the feeling that is oneness between us. And, uh, and then turns to my mom in this like swell of, you know, that beautiful feeling when you've had an mm. awakening and says, let's move to America and make a freedom child. And my mom's <laughs> like, what are you talking about? And, um, and no, well, just not yet. But <laughs> she, he was like, I'll give you you think about it. My mom was like the head of the family. So like, obviously, he wasn't gonna make this decision without her but he he, and she took six hours apparently and was like let's do it and they had like intentional sex which i wish i didn't hear about (laughs) over and over my whole life but and created me like intentionally with this like lovemaking experience and and then came to the states and i was born here a month later. But it all got pretty dark. As you know, you know, my Mm -hmm. life didn't, uh, I think it could have been very different, like if had my mom not died when I was suddenly when I was six years old, Mm -hmm. but she got pancreatic cancer and died. And it was like the beginning of like an episodic like funeral expose like I just went to funeral after funeral like two weeks after my mom died which I think is one of the most painful like Confucius said it's one of the four great losses in life is to lose a parent when you're young Mm -hmm. and I've spent my whole life trying to pretend like it's not a big deal you know because I'm kind of hardcore and kind of rock and roll but it's a fucking big deal like losing your parent and I think just now because I just had a baby well a second baby but like this this having of a child has really brought me back to like how much love there was between me and my mom and how painful that was for both of us to have to part Mm -hmm. at such a young age. So um, she died and then everyone else died like kind of one by one, leaving my father and my brother and me on the planet. And my father albeit awakened shaman was broken from this loss like it was really devastating to him and um and I became very depressed which for anyone who's listening who feels depressed um you know I don't understand exactly how this planet works but I don't think that depression or dis-ease or disease or anything that's wrong with anyone listening is some kind of a problem You know, and I, Mm -hmm. because I faced such a harrowing, lengthy, deep sadness because of all this death, I can say for sure that it was one of the main ingredients for my bliss today. And not everyone has to have that too. So if you're listening and you're like, well, should I like go cut off my arm or something? It's like, no, it's not definite that that's your concoction. But for me, it was like.
0: It can be transformative.
1: Yeah, it was needed. I needed to be broken down so that I could re rebirth, you know, and and come to re, reinterpret misery and reinterpret pain in a way that was useful to the world, which I believe is what I'm bringing so today. So
0: what did life look like with you and your dad trying to cope and your brother um, living in this state, trying to raise you? Um, what, what did that look like? It looked like
1: Like some kind of very mishmashed blend of complete bliss and complete, uh, like, mayhem. Insanity. Yeah. So, like, we had no money, and be- what went from being a two family income, two partner income, slash Im- first generation immigrants broke as fuck, like, but went to one parent income who also happened to be an awakened, unmanageable shaman who didn't care about money because all he cared about was enlightenment. So, mm-hmm. things were crazy. Like, I had mismatched socks. My hair was never brushed. <laughs> People at school, like, Thought I was nuts. Um, the not the kids. Like I, I was pretty popular because I'm good with people, and I guess I'm interesting. But like <laughs> the the teachers kind of hated me because I was this really like rebel kid. Yeah, and I didn't. Uh, I thought they were dumb, and I made it known all the time, which is sort of like sad and mean. Now, if I could go back in time, I'd totally do it differently. But what can you do? And. Um, you know just broke lived in like a you know two bedroom in like Jackson Heights Queens and there was like roaches and mice and it was it was a disaster zone and my dad was a very what do you call it um you know he liked the ladies so it was like every two years there was like a new chick flowing through the apartment for and they usually lasted about two years before that the disaster of the breakup would happen and then a new one was in within 24 hours i don't know like he must, he must have had them on backup because <laughs> it was like I'd, w- I'd go wake up one morning and they was a split and the next morning like clockwork there was like a new russian woman like sitting at the counter drinking tea like had moved in (laughs) (laughs) so there was that
0: (laughs) and then how did this transition into your young adulthood so here you were in jackson heights with the (laughs) rotating ladies and and your dad um what happened as you transitioned out of the house
1: um Well, I didn't transition out of the house for a very long time because my dad was, he was my best friend. And when I turned 20, like we started drinking together and it was just like a very different scene. I studied with him the whole time. And, um, but it did transition in that I was an artist. And so I uh, started playing gigs at, you know, CBGBs and all the downtown New York clubs and uh, got signed to Sony when I was 19 years old. And so I never moved out of the house. Okay, just to be clear, yeah. like I lived with my father until I was like 26 years old.
0: Even like, with the recording contract, even with all of that. Well, because were, he, was your, yeah. he was your teacher. He
1: was my teacher. Uh, yeah, but I was like a super unmanageable, alcoholic, drug addict kind of kid. And he was paying my rent. Mm. And even though we didn't have a lot of money, like I just loved living with him. So I couldn't perceive mm-hmm. like why would I move and go pay rent somewhere. But also <laughs> I didn't work for a living. So like I just got this deal which was like I don't know they gave me like 30 grand or something like 20 grand Mm -hmm. that goes pretty fast in New York City so it wasn't like I was like I'm moving on up like I literally got that money and that was the end of that money and that was the end of money period Mm -hmm. after that so um so then I like shaved my head and toured the country Mm -hmm. selling cds out of my book bag I did that but only to return home you know back to back to my
0: father Mm -hmm. and tell us a little bit about um the transition into sobriety and when you decided to make that leap
1: yeah um i guess to to bedrock underneath my transition into sobriety i should mention that the next after i got signed to sony the next nine years would be spent like drinking for the first four years and then that transformed into heavy daily heroin and cocaine use for the next five years and um And in that time, you know, trying to get sober or getting sober effectively when I had my first daughter, but there was Mm -hmm. just like a series of tragedies that led to me getting sober. It wasn't like I just woke up one morning and was like, you know what? I just don't want to do heroin anymore. (laughs) I was convinced that I was going to do heroin for the rest of my life. I couldn't imagine life without it. It was Mm -hmm. awesome. Someone the other day posted on Facebook saying like, oh yeah, like taking off your ski boots and like, after you've worn them for 7 hours i can only imagine that's like what heroin feels like and i was thinking no it's so much better than that dude like it's <laughs> you're off by a lot um so yeah i was a fan and um it took a lot like first my my daughter i had a daughter 13 years ago mm-hmm. she passed away suddenly of sudden infant death syndrome which did not get me sober. I picked up heroin after her funeral. Mm. Um, then my house burnt down, and I lived in the half of the house. I mean, you've read the book, yeah, so like yeah, you've yeah. you, you read all. these insane stories. But I read, I lived in the half of the house that had burnt down, mm-hmm. like ordering heroin, basically. Um, and then uh, my, my friend committed suicide. I also had a near-death experience where I was like hauled to the hospital and like had a, you know like almost died moment Mm -hmm. so all these things happened and none of them woke me up but then finally my father died and that was when I was 28 years old and you know a lot of people listening maybe know about Saturn's return but it's Mm -hmm. like this weird epic time when the planets kind of align to mess with us right like they they are there to shake things up and this isn't an astrological thing like it doesn't matter if you're an Aries or a Scorpio (laughs) like this is a thing where Saturn the planet happens to return to the exact point in the sky where it was when you were born Mm -hmm. and stays there for two years so from 28 to 30 my father died I literally only almost became like a high-end prostitute and then finally in the midst of this like come to god moment I just was like I don't I don't think I can do this anymore I just can't I can't I just can't do this anymore. And there was this, like, de- desperation that hadn't had I hadn't had before. And I got sober that day. I mean, I think it took a couple months to finally land the button. Like, I tried to do a little bit of ecstasy, and I tried to do a little mm-hmm. of this. Mm-hmm. And after about two months on January 31st, which um, it'll be 10 years, yeah. So it, I just got sober, and that was it. And that was almost 10 years ago.
0: And at that time, on that January 31st, was that the one day – switch finally after all the attempts was that was, was it one day where you stopped and then never started again
1: yeah it was like the 30th I did some ecstasy with my ex-boyfriend kind mm-hmm. of person I'd mm-hmm. call him a boyfriend would be like an overstatement <laughs> probably but he's some guy that I spent a lot of time you know soul connecting with and Mm -hmm. making love to for anyone who's listening who has one of these people like (laughs) leave, leave now. Um, But anyway, I was with him and we were tripping on ecstasy and he's not an addict like me. He was like a normal person who Mm -hmm. like can take it or leave it. And I remember I was on the ecstasy and I was naked in the bedroom tripping and I couldn't believe it, but because I had strung 21 days together of sobriety, I had some reference. And Mm -hmm. I turned to him in this like epic, like my hands in the air, I'm naked. And I was like, oh my God, oh my God. Like, I was like, this is not as good as the 21 days of sobriety that I just had. Like, this is amazing. This is amazing. Like, ecstasy is awesome. (laughs) But I was like, but it's not as good as the 21 days of sobriety that I just experienced. And he was like okay like he totally didn't care he was like whatever be it but but i knew at that moment i had like an i don't know it was just i couldn't believe it that that sobriety could be better than ecstasy Mm -hmm. but it had been and that was it i made as soon as i got sober after that 31st i woke up and i was like i'm not interested in that path anymore
0: so what followed what Um, opened up (laughs) when that path ended
1: it got really blissful fast because when you remove the drug from the drug addict, like you get this a window, I find, um, of an opening. Mm-hmm. And everything got really interesting and magic starts to happen, right? Because whenever you're moving in the right direction, the universe is like, like <laughs> amazing thing here. Like, lucky lucky break there. Like, amazing person that you didn't think you would meet. Like it would just, doors started opening yeah and I could tell that I was moving in the right direction like it's like that game when you're young it's like you're hot you're hot you're cold you're cold (laughs) like it was like you're hot you're getting closer to your purpose and um and I did that and for like a few years it was really beautiful Mm -hmm. and after a couple of years I really got bored I was like this is really boring and (laughs) definitely not what I signed up for. And I was on the verge of tripping on mushrooms again because I was like, you know, I wanted that feeling. Mm-hmm. And so I prayed and I, I I was already in the practice of praying and meditating every day at that point. So I prayed and I just said, just like, show me, show me, show me what my path is. And for me, the voice within me, I have a voice within me that like speaks to me very directly with cues that I spent most of my life telling you know to go f itself Mm because i didn't care but at this point i was like surrendered to this voice and i'm like tell me what you want me to do and this voice came to me as like as i was about to like chomp on some mushrooms um the voice was like maybe you shouldn't do that and i was like okay well what do you want what will you have me do you know and i was really pissed and uh the voice was like what about returning to your father's work like making it your life's purpose and I was like, all oh, right, you know, fine, you know, <laughs> and uh, and I did. I surrendered, and I started working on my father's work from that day. That was eight years ago.
0: So then, what role had meditation and philosophy and all that played in your life? I know that it was a part of your upbringing. That was something that you were doing early on. But then, what what role had that played in like the ten years prior to that? Had you fallen out of it and gone more into the music and the art, mm. or was it always there in the background?
1: It was certainly there in the background. And I would just say that it was like a pretentious, like, you know, kind of like article of clothing that one wears. I knew who I knew a lot about that world having grown up, you know, st- steeped in it from such an early age, from birth, really. Mm-hmm. And so... I was that drunken, cracked out girl at the party at like sex in the morning, like talking about the meaning of existence. And I was like, when I came out of the closet about being a spiritual teacher, which I most certainly did not know that I was, Mm -hmm. I called people and told them that that's what I was doing now. And they were like, yeah, duh. Like they already knew who I was. So clearly I just didn't know who I was. And, also, when you're doing drugs like that and having sex with people and like out of integrity in every single way, and your your whole life is like a victim of your ego, basically, mm-hmm. like your ego is like your master, there's no room to be in the bliss that you know about. So I had the knowledge and I had the information, but I didn't know how to be in that state mm-hmm. on my own volition and for extended periods
0: is that how center of the cyclone came to be
1: yeah um after a couple of the years. way you're
0: describing that sounds very much like being in the center of a vortex of something bigger that was spinning
1: yes yeah, it did come to be like that. It was it was amazing. It was uh, after several years of of turning back to my father's work, I had a group that I would meet with, and I would study this work. I meditated several hours per day. I did all the fourth way work that I you know I'm bringing in this book, and started to master it more and more. It started to become a very natural part of my being and so I was in a very blissed out state all the time again I had no money still and I didn't know what to do for a living I just I was like I'm a singer I'm an artist I'm a singer I'm an artist like what do you do you know and I'm also not a plan b person so (laughs) I just don't do plan b's I don't believe in plan b's Mm -hmm. um it's part of my whatever my religion is which I make up every day (laughs) um that's not part of my religion so to me it was like I'd rather die poor and hungry and be who I am then do something else. So I, there I was, this broke, confused artist, and meditating and praying every day and saying, universe, please show me what your will is for me. Universe, please show me what your will is for me. And again, I call it God, but I'm not religious. <laughs> and I say, God, please help me. And this voice came down and was like, you are a spiritual teacher and you're meant to bring this meditation work to the world, like create a meditation sequence and bring it into the art world and bring it into the art world and change the way meditation is currently being um, digested. Right now it's like on ashrams and you have to wear a bindi and light some incense and
0: go Mm -hmm. to
1: shivananda, And like, there's all these rules back then. And I was like, what? again very surprised and for anyone who's listening like if you're surprised by your (laughs) destiny like great that's good news because that's a sign that you're moving in the right direction so I was like what is going on okay I'll do this and so I started doing meditation experiences in art galleries. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and, you know, that's obviously led to a huge career traveling all over the world and also doing meditations inside the Museum of Modern Art. and mm-hmm. And then also in the midst of all this like transformative work that I was doing, I put aside music for two years to launch this thing of being a spiritual teacher because not because I wanted to in fact I really was like are you saying that I can't make music anymore and the voice was like not now like you can't make music so I kind of was like maybe I'll never make music again but it had to be okay because I was pursuing this thing mm-hmm. and 2 years into it I was doing this immersive weekend where I was meditating like all day and I started to cry and something came down to me. and said, you need to go raise a bunch of money to record a record. And I was like, what? <laughs> and it was like, you need to do this because you're meant to record a record. And I said to, again, to God, I said, well, you told me not to make music anymore because I'm a freaking spiritual teacher. <laughs> and the voice went, you get to do both. And I was like, my brain exploded and I did that I raised twelve thousand dollars I made a record and now for many years I score my events with my own music I sing I perform so it's like a big part of what I do and it sort of sounds like coldplay it's very not
0: um, not Hindu temple right yeah and how does the um, how does the music enhance the meditation what is the role of music in the meditation experience
1: you know, my understanding is is that spirituality is the expression of our highest creative selves. And if you look back at your life and you think about the things that have touched you most, it's usually not some meditation that you did at like a yoga studio. It's going to be, you know, hearing Bach's double violin concerto in D minor for the first time. <laughs> or it's going to be seeing a film like Wings of Desire and... Something that really moves you and changes your life forever because it takes its hands, reaches into a part of you that you have almost no access to, which is your soul, and then yanks it out. And you feel like this unexplainable euphoria and you feel thrilled to become, right? Mm -hmm. Like I don't think the fact that I'm great at orating spiritual concepts from the beginning of time is my highest like yes it is a skill of mine but the real skill is being able to dive into people's souls and help them to remember why they're so incredible why they matter because it's not about me like if it was about me I would not be
0: successful you know and do you think that's what people get out of the meditation experience that sense of reckoning that sense of looking and seeing self again
1: I do. I know for sure that that is what happens. And I think it's partially because I'm so vulnerable. And I don't hide what a hard path I was given to get here. But I also don't hide how beautiful and blissed out I am now, which I think is, it's a weird mixture. You know, I know some people who are out there like, Poster child for vulnerability. And what that comes out looking like sometimes is someone just being like, wah, wah, here's my problems. And now I'm sharing them with you. And don't you feel like less alone?
0: Mm -hmm. Great.
1: That's amazing. But to me, what takes great courage is that I recognize that I am the source of all my problems. So if I'm willing to not be, what does that look like? Mm -hmm. You know, what does it look like to? To choose to not be the source of all your problems. (laughs) It's like insane and that's infectious. People see when someone's willing to go that distance and they leave the meditations being like, maybe I can do anything and maybe
0: I can feel brilliant and confident and free So you work with a lot of people in your meditations and in your private work that are dealing with a lot of trauma, that are dealing with a lot of, that are dealing with loss. These are obviously themes of your own life. How do you think that people deal with them in ways that aren't serving us? How do you try and guide people towards a better path? Hmm.
1: I think the answer to all of our problems is a matter of integrity but it is to each their own. So how do you, there's no one, one size fits all answer. I don't give people that, but I do kind of, um, I don't know how to say this in the, which terms to say this in. I, um, I shake them, you know, I shock people and I'm not your average guide or teacher. People are lying. They're lying to themselves, and I help them to stop doing that. When we stop lying to ourself, like, for instance, like, I'm just one person who I can't – I've always wanted to be like that girl on Instagram who's, like, eating ice cream but, like, waif thin and being like, yay, I'm having such a nice time, like, eating my ice cream, and after this I'm going to go have kale. Do you know what I'm talking about? You know those girls. Absolutely. But I've just never been that. For me, when I eat ice cream or when I eat certain foods, like sugars and flowers and heavy-weighted things, I usually feel really depressed. And then I feel uh, lonely, and I feel like I'm not who I say I am. So I feel like I'm kind of lying, like I'm a... uh, Oh, I'm the spiritual teacher, but it's like deep down. But in the background, it's like, you're not really... You know, you're nothing. And Mm -hmm. so I... um. To me, integrity is just not eating that stuff, which makes me feel like an outsider sometimes because people will be like, but it's gluten-free and, like, sugar-free and made with coconut sugar or whatever. And that not that they say it in that voice, but <laughs> I kind of hear it in that voice. I'm like, great. Thank you for sharing, you know? I get to choose not to eat that stuff today. And, um, and that's self-care. But I'm saying for each one of my students, they know where they're lying, mm-hmm. right? Because... You just know. Like you know because there's a voice being like maybe you shouldn't eat that. Maybe you shouldn't sleep with that person. <laughs> and
0: it's about shaking it out of them.
1: Yeah, I shake it out of them. I do. And I know I'm willing to I'm willing to tell them things that I think
0: is there any way we can shake it out of ourselves?
1: Um I don't believe that we're separate. So, y- you know, For me, my purpose on this planet is to be that part of you that does that for you. But I don't think I'm separate. Like, I remember once, many years ago, I had a teacher and I said to him how incredible he was. He was so incredible. I just loved this teacher. He was so delicious. (laughs) And he said, well, that's great, Biet, because you created me. (laughs) And I was like, what do you mean? And he was like, well, you created me. Like, I don't even exist. You just... This, I'm the part of you that was is here to show you this thing. So can we do it ourself? I don't know. That's like saying, can I have sex by myself? It's like, <laughs> maybe. But it's better when you create and manifest the person with whom to do it with.
0: Mm-hmm. Tell us a little bit about um, the book, which is broken up into 44 sections. Can you tell us a little bit about how you came up with that?
1: Yeah. So... My work is derived from an ancient teaching called Fourth Way Work. Uh, Fourth Way Work is originally derived from Mm -hmm. India in the same place where the Vedas are derived from, but different lineages, and then brought to this occult mystical leader in Russia named Gurdjieff, who was a teacher of mine Mm -hmm. by way of my father, and this stuff is so dense. So like for anyone who's listening to this and is like, "I'm just going to go buy me one of those Fourth Way books." It's like, <laughs> good luck. Um it's not meant to be studied on your own. It's also not meant to be studied without a real teacher. So like even if you do pick up a book on Fourth Way, it's dense, it's hardcore, right? Mm-hmm. And a lot of it is like, woo, out there, right? Mm -hmm. Um, And I, being a teacher of this work and having studied it my whole life, can dial it down for you in a second, but without that support, it could be a little bit grueling, right? So I had this vision. I was like, how am I going to bring this work, which is my work? It's my main, you know, like I have studied Zen Buddhism. I've studied um, mystical Christianity. I've studied Kabbalah. I've studied all these Mm -hmm. things, but for me, the framework through which I view everything is fourth way, right? So I'm like, how am I going to bring this this
0: compass to people? And And can you tell us what that compass is? I know it's something you've described in the book.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's a system, right? Mm -hmm. And so inside that system, there's a theory that there's 48 laws that we live under. And so I had this vision as I was meditating on what the book was going to be. And a voice came to me as it always does and said, the book is going to be like 48 chapters on the 48 laws that prevent you from enlightenment. As I began writing the book, I decided that some of those laws were no longer, like weren't for this for the wide audience. They're mm-hmm. too woo-woo, so I cut those out. Um, I also put some in that were like references from other parts of the work. And all in all, it ended up being 44, which is a mm-hmm. very important number. Um, they say that in numerology that I think that Jesus was a 44, Hmm. right? So I don't know about Jesus or if he even existed, but let's say he did. (laughs) He was probably a 44. So there's some lineage to that and some holding to that.
0: Mm -hmm. And now what are the – can you give us an example of the different laws? Um, There are obviously 44. We won't go through all of them, but can you give us an example of what um, what one of the the laws is and why you think it's so important that we – take time to dwell on each one of these 44 and to really understand it and meditate on them. You suggest spending about a week on each one, right?
1: At a time. So the the way the work is uh, conceived is that you're meant to study it forever. Um, and again, like, it's sort of like, I think it's similar in a way to what Marianne Williamson did with A Course in Miracles, bringing it to people in this, because it's a dense, mm-hmm. if you've ever read A Course in Miracles, yeah. like, it's like, what? <laughs> so I think that she did that. And, and the same with this. I've been studying this for years and years and years and years. And so the amount of times that I've gone over each one of these laws. hmm hundreds, thousands, like, and it never gets old. It's not like, okay, once you've done them one week at a time, 44, you're done. You've graduated, check, done. like check, done. You're enlightened, actually. <laughs> it's not like that. Um, actually, one of the suggestions, I don't know if I give it in the book, but the, the, the vision that I've had for this book is that people will form study groups and meet weekly and just do a law at a, at a time and then go into the week seeing how that law affects their life and then discussing it the following week and then mm-hmm. moving into the next law, so on and so forth. And it could be done in two-hour intervals once a week. You could do that for the rest of your life with a group, right? And doing, like, the different exercises and or incorporating
0: a guided by beat
1: experience inside of that, right?
0: And give us an example of a law and what that looks like and how you might examine that over a week.
1: So um, let's think, which law do we want to look at? One law in the book is the law of equals. I don't know if you saw that mm-hmm. one. Law of equals is about how we are naturally drawn towards people who we think are out of our league, right? <laughs> so we like we there's that girl, and she's just like so cool, and we, we can't believe she's so awesome. And we're afraid to ask her to coffee. We're afraid to become her friend because she's so amazing. Or there's that guy, and he's so, he's like accomplished in whatever field it is you're aspiring to be and blah 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 and so the, the the point of this law is the idea is it's a trick people who are inspiring to you like that are actually your equals that's why they frighten you like that and in fact we're actually all usually gravitating towards people who are beneath us so that we can just not rise to being who we truly are so we'll become friends with people who are less than us and we'll kind of like always kind of know that that's what's happening and we feel ashamed about it in the back of our minds but we like just still do it and Mm -hmm. so this chapter speaks to like pushing yourself out of your comfort zone and asking that girl out for coffee (laughs) and you know weird things start to happen when you push past your comfort zone in that and and remember that law which is that these people seem like they're higher than you and that's the mirage they're actually your equals and you're just afraid to become who you are
0: why was now the right time to write this book for you
1: i don't someone said the other day god i forget where it was from someone said that god is time that was one interpretation of god i thought how beautiful like if if God is, time, then it's like, that makes so much sense. It's like, (laughs) it it slows down, it speeds up depending on what you do. And nothing happens at the wrong time. I didn't choose to write this book now. Mm -hmm. I wanted to write a book my whole life. (laughs) If you're listening to this, you probably want to write a book, you know, and you want to write a book so bad, you want to punch people. You know the desire is so big. If you're someone who wants to write a book, you really, 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 really want to write a book, and probably many books, and you probably really want to have it read by millions of people. Because there's there's no book that's ever been written that didn't have that yearning inside of it. So I didn't. I just did what every little next step that came to me. When I, when the universe said you're a spiritual teacher, I said fine. I gave up everything and I did that. <laughs> when the universe said, make music and score your events with music, I did that. And that took me around the world performing these you know, very unique experiences. And when several articles were written about me in Vogue and Elle and Harper's Bazaar and a literary agent found me and said, hey, why don't we get you a book deal? I did that. I just did every next step. Mm-hmm. And the next thing you know, here I am. You know, but I would say that I did, I did get out of my comfort zone one step at a time. Like I never was like,
0: no, I'm not doing that. You know. <laughs> and speaking of next steps, you have a new little person in your life. Yeah, <laughs> um, baby, cash. Baby, cash. So tell us a little bit about motherhood. I think that you have so many interesting perspectives on motherhood. But um, one of the things that you've talked about a bit is what the Journey, the healing journey, when Cash was first born was like and what that shook up in you. Can you talk to that a bit?
1: Um, So I mentioned before that I had a daughter who died 13 years ago. Her name was Ula.
0: Beautiful name.
1: Thanks. And she was so beautiful and so healthy. There was nothing wrong with her. We don't know how she died. And, um, you know, I... I've been, you know, grieving that for 13 years. But I don't know if there's any way to grieve something like that. It's so big. And I've tried many different therapies and modalities and Mm -hmm. somatic work and, you know, food choices and, you know, prayers. I've done all the things. Mm -hmm. But to, to overcome a loss like that and to not have it, inform your thinking is is almost impossible and I was like you know bearing through it through pregnancy kind of like okay I gotta you know just this is what's happening and I really was like you know is my kid gonna die is my kid gonna be sick is something wrong gonna happen and everyone kept telling me like your kid's gonna be fine you're gonna be fine and I just every
0: parent lives with that fear already but then to have a have happened to you before I can't imagine how magnified that must be and how scary it must be and how brave you are thanks. for doing it again thanks yeah I felt
1: almost like I was like I don't want to do this I don't want to do this you yeah. know I don't want to go through that again yeah um I was terrified and I had two kind of mama characters in my life because I don't have a mom I had these two mother figures and they were both like you have to have a kid yeah. like it's time and honestly I needed that Swift kick in the butt. I, I wasn't... I kept kind of being like, later. Um. But I did have a vision always that my first living child would come when I was 39 years old. Mm-hmm. And then lo and behold, that is exactly how it happened. I, oh. We got eloped last year, and then two days later you know, made love and that was it. Like he took (laughs) off, we had sex once, like for everyone out there who's like, you can't get pregnant at 39. It's like, yes, yes you can. (laughs) Um, We had sex once and then he took back, he took off to New York and two weeks later when I saw him, I was pregnant. Wow and um and so here i was i had this baby perfect i had a c-section because it was like a third c-section after my near death and my c-section with ula Mm -hmm. i had to have a c-section so i had an emergency c-section like a planned emergency Mm c-section and then everything went perfectly well as well as you can go with like a major surgery that you're awake for (laughs) which is a disaster you know it's a disaster of a situation it's like a slow moving car crash if you can imagine that um and i came to and was like you know on a bunch of drugs as they put you on the hospital and mm-hmm. like laying there recovering everything's fine i had my doula made me like a five course meal i was mm-hmm. breastfeeding the baby everything's amazing and then we go home literally appear at the house and something starts to get weird and i was like i don't know what's going on but i feel really sick mm-hmm. and then it began and i just started throwing up i threw up for 7 days oh my god i didn't i couldn't hold down a sip of water i couldn't hold down a sip of gatorade like any food any liquid even that i put in my mouth i had to go vomit and i was nauseous almost 24 hours a day
0: this is why you're trying to recover from surgery
1: and breastfeeding the entire time so i'm breastfeeding the doula and my husband are circling me 24 hours a day i'm barely sleeping i sleep when i wake up i'm vomiting and or i'm like so nauseous i'm disoriented i can barely speak and then there was these like moments where for 10 minutes or 15 minutes i'd be kind of normal and then it would spiral back into like this insane i literally thought i was gonna die I lost like 20 pounds because I'm nursing and Mm -hmm. not eating. I lost like, I don't know because I wasn't weighing myself, but I lost like 20 pounds or 30 pounds. And they kept hauling me back to the emergency room to to rehydrate me because I was Mm -hmm. so dehydrated from vomiting. And on the second trip to the emergency room, I was like getting hydrated. And I always felt better when I was being hydrated Mm because, you know, bodies love water, apparently. And I
0: could not keep... It's a strangely good feeling. I know, it's weird. The hydration, I had a lot (laughs) of that during pregnancy and it it sort of feels good. (laughs) It's good,
1: yeah, you want that. And so I was being hydrated with the saline drip. And all of a sudden I turned to Christoph, my husband, and I was like, is that rice? And he was like holding like a big plate of basmati rice that he had gotten from like some bodega. Because I mean, he'd been up for like seven days and he was like trying to nourish himself like he got some bodega rice. <laughs> and I was like, is that rice? And he goes, yeah. And I was like, I'm so hungry. And he goes, what? Like, what are you talking about? Because he's been watching me vomit for seven days and he's like, I haven't eaten one thing. Like all I've done is like taken little sips of things and thrown up. And... Uh, and he goes, do you want some? And I was, I grabbed the rice from his hand and I start shoveling it into my mouth like a maniac and like chugging this hospital orange juice, like these yeah. little like, <laughs> cups of hospital orange juice. And he's like, slow down, be careful, like you haven't eaten in seven days. And I was like, I'm so hungry, I kept saying, and shoveling this rice. And that was it. It was like that moment. It just ended and it was weird because it was literally seven days Mm -hmm. and I came home, no one could, they'd done CAT scans, you know, they did x-rays, they did, they put me through so many machines, blood tests and urine tests and catheters and everything and they could not find one single thing wrong with me (laughs) and on the seventh day it just ended and I went home and I just knew that it was something about my daughter, like this trauma of having lost her was I think in my body Mm -hmm. and there was a one place where I hadn't like released it from and on the seventh day when I went home to my baby cash I just knew that she was gonna be okay like I was like I think I can be a mom I think I'm going to survive I think no one's gonna die now like she's gonna live a full life and I trust I trust that
0: What an incredible experience. Yeah, it was crazy. (laughs) (laughs) There's a lot of talk in the parenting community about things being hard and something that we repeat to ourselves a lot. Oh, it's so hard. Oh, this is just so hard. Oh, you just have to get through this. It's, It's hard. And in some ways, very true. And in some ways, recognizing what people are going through and in some ways, maybe taking away a bit of the joy. Um, it's something that you've already started to talk about and I'm curious about what you what you think about this concept of hard and you're only cash is three months now so you're still at the beginning but you're at some what people would say are the hardest months right For sure
1: yeah it's crazy I go out and people are like are you sleeping are you miserable like what's are you okay and I'm so happy but it was an instant I mean the first five weeks were really hard I had like um, I had an infection in the scar. I had to take antibiotics. I had this near-death experience where I almost died for seven days. Um, I had to get used to, you know, nursing twenty-two hours out of twenty-four. Like you're nursing all the time when you have a baby, baby newborn. Like when they're really tiny, mm-hmm. they're just constantly on your boobs. And I literally, I mean, for anyone who's listening who's done this, it's like you know you've done you've done the breastfeeding, right? It's oh yeah,
0: nuts. If they're not sleeping, they're eating.
1: Yes, if they're not sleeping, they're eating. And so I was like, this is horrible. And I got a gig in Art Basel, like right, right when I had the baby, like I got a letter being like, would you like to, you know, come to Art Basel? We'll fly you, your husband, your doula, everything and blah, blah. It was, you know, a paid gig with my music and this art installation. Mm -hmm. Beautiful. And I was like, I'm gonna go to prove that like moms can do things. Meanwhile, like I was five weeks into having a baby and we brought her down there to Art Basel Mm -hmm. and I was exhausted. We tried to go to like the standard Mm -hmm. to like go get a massage. I just wasn't, you know, like I just wasn't there yet. I hadn't quite figured it out, you know. And so I was miserable. I was like, this is crazy. Like being a mom is going to be the worst thing that ever happened to me. (laughs) And then something happened to me on the flight home from Art Basel. I don't know what it was. I was holding my baby in my arms, and I surrendered. I just, I just realized that it was me that I was making this miserable, and that it was going to be beautiful if I said it was. But I couldn't keep looking at it the way that I was, which was that it was somehow like a burden that the change had happened Mm -hmm. because it is a change right like you you have this new person on the planet and so something happened it wasn't there was wasn't so specific but i realized that presence was the key and that if i wasn't present when you're present all things become easy all things become easy when you're present like it doesn't matter if you're chopping radishes or if you're you know you know booking air, tra- air travel, like, whatever you don't like to do, um, those are two things I don't love doing, you know, radishes and air travel, but, like, you can feel light and buoyant while you're doing those things, and so I had that surrender, and it's just been blissful ever since, like, I have just felt so free, I'm so in love with this baby, I can't even believe that she's on the planet, like, what a gift, and I'm, and I'm sleeping. I started co-sleeping with her, which I guess is controversial too because I was like afraid that I was going to kill her or something because people are like, you'll kill them. And I just was like, I just think that's where she's meant to sleep. And it's my favorite part of the day is <laughs> taking her to bed is so fun. It's like she's so warm and cute. And I don't even know what I'm going to do once she's no longer that size because it's <laughs> – you know, it's like having, like, your own personal human shih tzu, you know? <laughs>
0: <laughs> Hopefully she stays a snuggler. Oh, I hope so. Tell us about love. A lot of times people say that they have not experienced the love of that they experienced with their child, that that love is so un- undescribable and so unlike anything else. You say something a little bit different.
1: I think that when I was young and a baby... And a kid, I was in love, really in love with my parents. I was in love with them. Like the level of love that I felt towards them was unthinkable, you know, and it, it's why most of us are in therapy for the rest of our lives. It's like <laughs> you, you love these people and then you, they betray you in a way or you think they've betrayed you because they cannot live up to this whatever insane standard that you put on them. And um, I loved them, and then I fell in love when I was 16. I had like this, you know, childhood sweetheart kind of boyfriend guy, and it was so brutal when we broke up. I think it was like a year and a half, or it was probably like six months of being together and then a year of like breaking up and getting back together in that horrible teenage way. (laughs) Oh, it was so brutal. And it was, I remember like one day laying on the floor in my living room and just crying a way I'd never cried before. And like, I couldn't get off the floor. Like, I was so in love with him. And it was over. And I think I learned from that experience and from my parents and having lost my mom too, too, she died. I mean, and then losing my daughter. I think I just slowly started to shut down the amount of love I was willing to express and I had to fight to love again I think as many of us do and make it well I think I spoke about this when I wrote about it like in the in the sense of like it wasn't until I learned that the love story of my life couldn't be with a human that I was able to love again And I turned my life over to falling in love with my soul, which I call my soulmate. Like, my soul is my soulmate. Mm -hmm. And my body and my mind and my soul get to meet and fall in love. I think everything else in my life is secondary to that, including my daughter, which sounds sacrilegious. (laughs) I know. But the truth is, is that that's the way that it's meant to be. I don't think that she would have it any other way because she's on this planet to fall in love with her soul. And if I try to be more important than that, we are going to be in some big trouble. Love
0: that. What keeps you up at night? How do you mean?
1: Like other than cash? <laughs>
0: <laughs> um, yeah, What um, what troubles you in the world? What keeps you from sleeping? What worries you at night?
1: Um... I'm like really, I'm really traumatized. I'm I'm Jewish, and and so like I I think it's in my epigenetics to be freaked out about everything. <laughs> um, but I I'm blessed to say that nothing nothing keeps me up at night. I don't, I don't allow it to take that place in my life. That is to say that the amount of times a day that I think like horrifying thoughts is 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 higher than the average person i would i would even say it's just that as those thoughts come in i have a device with which to you know shoo them away you can't see this but i'm making little hand motions (laughs) to shoo them away and transform those thoughts into something of like what can i do today to be as effective and as loving as possible
0: And the funny. Can you give me an example of that? Which part? What happens? What's a fear? What's a worry that you have that you then transform into something that's productive? How can I be more loving?
1: Hmm. Well, I thought I was going to die going into C-section. Like I, I think I'm going to go down when I get in a plane. I. I sometimes just randomly a door, like a, the doorbell will ring or something will happen. And I'm like, World War Three has started. Um, one time I was in my living room with my husband. And I, I smelled like some gas or a fire. I don't know what the hell I smelled or something happened. And I get up and I was like, guys, we got to go, guys. And I don't know who guys are or what. Was, I was thinking I ran <laughs> out the door. And I get to the hallway and it dawns on me that the building is not on fire. (laughs) So I run back into the living room and I was like, it's all good. And my husband's like, what the hell was that? And I was like, oh, I just thought we were all about to burn down in a fire. And he's like, what? That. He's like, who thinks like that? You were like, guys, we got to go, guys. And you ran.
0: For you were door. very proactive.
1: <laughs> I was very, like, you want to be with me when, when it hits the fan, right? Because it's like, it's coming down. Um, yeah, I just have a lot of, I was recently, also last night I was watching Netflix. And I was watching, I won't name the show, but it was like some show that that I was watching that I thought was kind of entertaining. And then it turned really creepy, really fast. Like, it's about a serial killer, which I didn't fully Mm -hmm. know. Mm -hmm. And then, like, they showed him, like, doing some really messed up stuff to one of his victims. And I was, I was like, I wish I could take back that scene. I wish I had never watched it. Mm-hmm. because I just, my mind is I already see it. the amount of imagination I have about what's possible. Mm-hmm. You know, like my my husband often says this to me, like he'll be like, blah, 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 something. And I'm like, but how do you know that we, you know what I mean? Like I come up with some, he's like, you know what, Biet, your fears are so, um, what did he say? Eccentric. He's like, I would have never thought of that as even a possibility. Now I'm freaked out, you know?
0: <laughs> What wakes you up in the morning? What gets you out of bed? What do you get excited about each day?
1: Mm, My vision, I think is the thing. I get so excited about the different pieces and, and watching it all come together. I'm also very excited about observing my level of being and seeing how my level of being carries me to the next kind of episode of the video game. So I find that very exciting. To see how I've transmuted. Like recently I discovered that I was codependent, for instance, right? So like I Mm -hmm. have this issue with codependence. And instead of seeing it as like, oh, wow, like this is just another flaw of mine. I can't believe I have more to deal with. I'm already turning 40. You know what I mean? I was more just like, wow, like I wonder what incredible skill or what incredible aspect of reality I'm currently missing as a result of being a victim of my codependence. Mm-hmm. And so I started to unravel codependence by observing it in my life, which is like the book speaks a lot about that observing, observing, observing. And as you observe, the thing dissolves because mm-hmm. it can't survive under the light of your observation. And so like I observed the the um, codependence and what I watch is As that is viewed and then excised, you know, or let go of, there's this other parts or facets of my life that come in as a result, (laughs) these incredible opportunities and weird occurrences and serendipity. So that gets me out of bed, like watching things that I use to hide behind fade away and watching the the veil come out and be like ta-da and you get this like red carpet entrance into this new part of your life that you've never seen
0: if you could go back in time and tell 20-year-old Beat something what would you tell her
1: i think i did go back in time and tell her i actually believe that that voice in my head that tells me what to do is me from the future just guiding me along because I don't believe in time in the linear sense. Um, so I think that she said all the things to me. Like she said, she said all the things and <laughs> I wasn't listening. And then I started to listen. You know, and a twenty year old Biette was a vicious, obstinate little girl. She was like, No, I'm not doing that. But I do believe she was there. I was there saying, I love you. I'm here. Everything's going to work out. Like, even when I was in the midst of deep, deep heroin addiction, I still remember knowing that I was going to be clean one day. How do you know that? You know? Like, I was on the brink of death one night, like, speedballing. And a voice was like, but it's okay, because you can't die. You're not going to die. Wow. Yeah.
0: Yeah, thank you so much for being here. Thank